I think there's probably a number of things that we need to do, but I think the first one is you've got to look at who you're talking to and, and not come across like you're too crazy. I, I think that, that that's an important step is identifying your audience. Uh, the second thing I think that you've got to do is be educated. If you're, if you're telling people things that aren't accurate and true um, and they can immediately see that um, I mean, I think, almost anybody's meter goes off. And, and just as some examples of things that I hear other people that love the second amendment equally say, like I, for example, hear people say all the time, any gun law uh, or any, any pat law that's passed is unconstitutional. It's anti second amendment. And I actually, while I don't like new gun laws being passed, I'm not sure that that's actually historically or constitutionally accurate. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Mr. True Pierce, you have, I don't know, a complicated profession or professions? Like if you meet somebody and they say, well, what do you do? How do you even answer that? You got a lot going on. <laughs> it, it really honestly depends on who it is I'm talking to. Um, <laughs> most, <laughs> I give different answers depending on who's asking. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's say it's generic. You know, there's a lot of people listening. So, you know, how, how would you answer? Well, if it's, if it's a liberal, I tell them I'm an attorney. If it's a, a fellow hunter or shooter, I tell them that I'm the editor for Guns America magazine and Hunt 365. And, you know, and if it's a shooting competitor, then I used to, most of those people already know me. And I used to shoot a competitive three gun and a little bit of competitive long range stuff. So I guess it just depends on who I'm talking to as to what I'm doing that day. If it's the IRS, I tell them I have a ranch and that um, I have cows and horses and <laughs> and that I lose money every year. Yeah, lots and lots <laughs> of expenses. Right. What kind of law do you practice? So I have I mean, I live in Idaho, which is a small state, and um, I do a lot of country style uh, law practice, which means I've kind of done a little bit of everything. But I mostly now do criminal law, which is what I like the most. Um, I enjoy that more than just about any other type of law. What does that mean? Um, <laughs> well, in our country, uh, 
uh, our great country, we have a constitution and our constitution provides us safeguards and freedoms that almost no other country in the world has. They guarantee us things like um, the fact that we're not considered guilty, that we're considered innocent until we're proven guilty. We have a actual constitutional right to have a jury um, by trial, by our peers. Um, we have certain safeguards that I guess protect us from just having our freedom taken away and being thrown in prison. And so whenever anybody's accused of committing or breaking a crime in America, uh, they're given the right to have an attorney and that attorney makes sure that the rules are followed before that person's freedom is taken. So that's sort of what I specialize in is um, that style of, or type of law. Okay. So is defense attorney the same thing? Uh, not necessarily. So there's always two sides, right? So there's an attorney that's a prosecutor that actually um, prosecutes the person and they also practice criminal law. And then defense attorneys are, are the opposite side. They're who represents the defendant or the person being accused. So you could be a criminal law attorney and be either um, the, on the prosecution or the state side, or you could be on the defense side. Okay. And which side of that do you land on? <laughs> oh boy, I knew you're going there. So believe it or not, um, I'm actually a deputy prosecutor in a small county in Idaho, and I just go up and help with trials. Okay. And then the rest of the time, I practice defense in other counties. Okay. So I do both, which is really honestly pretty unusual. Yeah. Well, I think that probably makes you better at each of them, right? Absolutely. You know, there's some people that kind of lose their minds over it. Some attorneys don't think you can do both, but I think it gives you a really balanced. Uh, sort of view perspective. I would assume so. I think anytime that you can be proficient interdisciplinary, that it makes you better. Like if you are a good bow shot, you can turn those skills into being a good pistol shot or a good shotgun shot or a good rifle shot. Absolutely. They're wildly different skills. They're not even the same muscles, but it's similar enough that it, it does make you better at, at everything else that you're doing. Yep, I agree. So tell me more about Guns America. So um, Guns America is a free publication. Uh, they're 100% online and digital now, but they're we're probably the biggest um, publication in the entire industry. Uh, like when we go to SHOT Show and cover SHOT Show, we usually bring a crew of 12, 13 people and a camera crew and cover SHOT Show bigger than anyone else. We're publishing 20 plus articles a week at Guns America between the news side and the hardware side. And then, um, and it's a subscription based, but it's a free subscription. We've been around a long time. I wish that, uh, yeah. And I've been the editor of that publication for I think about three years now. Wow, cool. And then Hunt 365 is uh fairly new we actually started that after i started and um it's the hunting magazine nobody's ever heard of and yet we probably have more subscribers than any other individual hunting magazine so it's a monthly hunting magazine it's free as well it's part of guns america but it's focused on hunting and gear and that type of stuff in fact uh our our host today james has actually written an article on that if you guys haven't read it you should go check out his uh goat hunt his alaskan goat hunt on there yeah we'll throw a throw a link to that one down there in the bio and i'm about to step off for another hunt uh tomorrow that that true's a little bit jealous of um i do have boat space if you want to come jump in like we can we can make this happen <laughs> when, when are you leaving tomorrow yeah yeah 
Oh man, I would love to. I'm actually, uh, how long are you going for? Oh, just a week. Oh yeah. Well, I actually um, have court Thursday and I have, I'm teaching a, a private class to a, believe it or not, a church. I'm teaching an Idaho enhanced class to them an eight hour course Saturday. So. Oh, nice. I, um, yeah. Yeah. They're going to all be packing. It's going to be a safe place to go worship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. They nope. dangerous depending on your perspective. Nobody's falling asleep during that. Uh... <laughs> oh um well awesome man the reason that i i really wanted to to have you on other than that i enjoy talking to you is i want to get into how to talk about gun policy um you know the the president stepped out with some new executive actions and some directives and some wish lists for congress and it was all a little bit scary and confusing for for gun owners um and then I think if you're not a gun owner, but you still believe in the Bill of Rights, it was probably disconcerting on that level, too. It, it sparked a lot of emotions with a lot of people um, on, on both sides of the debate. And I wanted to, to talk with you about how do we talk about gun policy with, with people who are in the middle of the road, with people who are on the other side of the fence and amongst ourselves, like it's it's sort of like driving a truck or or cooking steak where every guy out there thinks that he's good at it but probably not um (laughs) so i mean how how do you have these conversations because you have to have them a lot um i do and i i think um i think it's kind of a multifaceted uh sort of uh situation i think something else to talk about whether politics or if you're, you know, regardless of what it is you're doing, you kind of have to gauge who your audience is. And then you, I think you have to be smart about it. You know, um, I'm a, absolutely a second amendment advocate. Um, I love guns. I believe in guns. I've been shooting guns since I was a little kid. Um, it's sort of part of my heritage. Uh, not that it makes me any more special than any other American, but I mean, I have ancestors that came here on the original Mayflower and, you know, they were part of carving this country out of a wilderness and, and guns were just a part of, were a part of life. And I guess I grew up hearing those stories. And um, my great grandfather was one of the original 26 Arizona Rangers and he carried a gun. And I mean, there's some really cool stories of stuff that he did with a gun and, and that's how I grew up. And so it's just sort of a second nature thing to me as far as how I feel about it. Um, and, and of course, obviously I love the constitution and the second amendment is a large and important part of that, but not everyone understands, not everyone agrees. We're really far removed from a time when, you know, you had to carry a gun or you might be killed um, in this country. And in fact, even in the States that we live in. Um, and so there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with them that, that don't understand them. They don't, they certainly don't understand the constitution or the laws and, and even, even people that are like-minded that believe in guns and, and the second amendment often, I think, as you're kind of suggesting, don't know how to talk about it. And we come across as crazy and um, <laughs> more, maybe more zealous advocates than we, than we should be. Um, and so I, I guess I think there's probably a number of things that we need to do, but I think the first one is you've got to look at who you're talking to and, and not come across like you're too crazy. I, I think that, that that's an important step is identifying your audience 
the second thing I think that you've got to do is be educated. If you're, if you're telling people things that aren't accurate and true um, and they can immediately see that um, I mean, I think almost anybody's meter goes off and, and just as some examples of things that I hear other people that love the second amendment equally say, like I, for example, hear people say all the time, any gun law, uh, or any any pat law that's passed is unconstitutional. It's anti-Second Amendment. And I actually, while I don't like new gun laws being passed, I'm not sure that that's actually historically or constitutionally accurate. And um, we've got a lot of people that are scared today, and that's part of our problem. They don't know how to protect themselves. They don't know how to defend themselves. They don't know how to shoot a gun. They don't understand the mechanics. They don't understand the legal issues. And so because of it, they count on the police and local government to protect them. And they and people that do understand it and carry guns are scary to them. And so um, I think it's important that we educate ourselves on the statistics. Like just as an example, police officers are, are very proud of the fact that they're one of the most law abiding groups of people in the United States. And if you didn't know that, they actually are. They really statistically are quite law-abiding. You know, in the news these days, we hear all kinds of things about police shooting innocent people. But the truth is, is that when you figure out how many millions of people live in our country and the rate that happens at, it's actually pretty rare that it happens and occurs. It's being politicized uh, without a doubt. But concealed carry permit holders, people that, like you and I that carry a gun every single day are even more law-abiding than police officers. We're the most law-abiding group of people as is as a group statistically of sort of any group out there. And so I think when you start realizing this and start seeing some of those statistics and you can share that with people, it, it changes the perspective on how people um, view people with guns. Is that, does that make any sense? Yeah, uh, totally. Where could I find those statistics so that I can back up what I'm saying? If I say concealed carry holders are, are the most law abiding group of American citizens. Well, that is a <laughs> that's a fantastic question. And I guess I would tell you that there are probably a number of resources out there. Um, one of the best ones is just Google it. If you Google statistics for concealed carry permit holders, a lot of the states have published them. Um, another another person or resource that's really valuable. Uh, there's a guy named John Lott. I actually heard him speak when I was in law school a number of years back, and he's written a number of books. Um, in fact, I think one of his books is actually called more guns, less crime. Um, but he is really into the statistics. He's testified in front of Congress. Uh, he's got a, like a resume as far as the stats about guns and crime, like you can't believe it. He often, um, if you get on his email list, he'll send you out like a monthly email and he'll debunk a lot of the things you hear on the news, talk about why they're inaccurate um, and so it, it's free um, to go get on his email list or go visit his website. And he'll have articles you can listen to, um, interviews that news organizations do with him where he'll explain some of these concepts and things. So uh, his name is John Lott. If you Google him, uh, you, you'll find the website that he runs. Okay. Why do you think this, the amendment concerning firearms is the second amendment in the Bill of Rights? <laughs> well, um, that is such a loaded question. And um, I, I think it's kind of interesting uh, when you consider what I, I mean, I think in order to actually have any sort of appreciation for the Bill of Rights, you have to really know what was going on in our country prior to that. I mean, uh, we all sort of remember from history class that we were an occupied country at one point in time. Uh, we had British soldiers that were being housed with us. Uh, 
They were living in our houses, eating our food, harassing our wives and children. Um, we didn't have the freedoms we take for granted today. You know, a lot of people came to America originally for religious freedom and they didn't have it. The Church of England was sort of the, the main religion. A lot of people didn't realize that back in that day, you had to go to the, the to the king's church. You had to pay taxes to it at least once a month or you got put in the stocks. Um, we didn't necessarily have the rights to uh, elect our governors, our leaders, uh, our judges. They were all appointed by the king. All kinds of things. We had taxes without representation. Lots of things led up to the American Revolutionary War. But by some miracle, after we won that war and beat the British, um, our, we sent our best and brightest men back to Philadelphia, where George Washington oversaw it, and they created the Constitution. And they studied the Bible, world history. I mean, they, they put their best and brightest minds together to try and figure out how to create a country that could avoid losing its freedom. And they created the Constitution, and I'm obviously paraphrasing and shortening this up, but they sent it out to be ratified by the 13 colonies, and the 13 colonies rejected it, in essence. They said, hey, where's our right to freedom of religion, freedom of speech, rights to assemble, rights to our firearms, rights to attorneys, rights against illegal searches and seizures, rights against um, you know, having redcoats living in our house or soldiers uh, having to live with us. Anyway, you guys get the idea. And the founder said, hey, follow the spirit of the document. It's covered. And, of course, the citizens said no way. Rather than rewrite the Constitution, they amended it. And the first 10 amendments that are considered the Bill of Rights. So, as we just mentioned, your right to assemble, your right to free speech, your right to religious freedom are protected by the First Amendment, among other things. The very second thing on the list is the Second Amendment, which is our right to bear arms. And believe it or not, in law school, I had lots of professors and students argue that that was the government's right to arm the military, that they needed uh, something in order to be able to arm the military, which is really ridiculous because uh, the Constitution already gave the government the right to create a military. Um, and it really is about our rights. The people were worried about creating a government that had too much power. And so those original 10 Bill of Rights were the, the rights that the people were literally saying to the government, you don't have the right to take these away from us. And so I think it's really significant that it's the second thing on the list. They thought that it was more important than illegal searches or seizures. They thought it was more important than a jury trial, than a trial by jury of their peers. I mean, you can go down the list of things that come after that. And I think it's significant that they're in the order that they're in. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but I think you have to really understand that, hey, these are people that just got done fighting against a tyrannical government that tried to take their freedoms, and they wanted to make sure they weren't going to recreate it uh, by creating a federal government that could do the exact same thing. And so, yeah. The wording in the Second Amendment is a little weird. Like, it, it doesn't read the way sentences read today. And I think that opens itself to people trying to interpret it maybe other than how it was originally intended. Um, and for those, you know, law students and professors who are talking about, um, you know, that being about the government arming the military, it specifically says militia and a militia is a military force that is raised from the civil population to supplement a regular army in an emergency. So militia is obviously very different from a military. If it, if they meant military, they would have written military. So talk me through a little bit about the actual phrasing of the second amendment. So, so look, I, I mean, certainly we've, we have evolved. We don't use the same sort of words that we used back then. In fact, if you go back and read the federalist papers or even the constitution, 
um, those were some really intelligent people because we don't read or write that way today. Um, in fact, highly educated people struggle with understanding the vocabulary in what, you know, what commonly was read by farmers back then. So I, I think that people get a little too hung up on this. You're absolutely right, though. The militia was absolutely the people um, in federal law. It was actually codified, um, meaning it was actually written into federal law who that meant. And it basically tells us that it's every able-bodied man up between the ages of like 17 and 56 is a member of that emergency militia. And, and so it's essentially the people. That is exactly who it was. It was the 13 colonies that originally gave the federal government power that created the Constitution, that created the federal government. And it's the people in those colonies or states that, that give those states power. And, and certainly um, that is what was meant. Almost every single state in the union, all 50 of them have some sort of Second Amendment in their own state constitution, um, something that ensures their right to have firearms um, which is also sort of interesting. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the term militia was not about a standing army. It was not about the government's right to arm the military. In fact, um, James Madison, who is often called the father of the Constitution, he was actually asked the question, you know, what's the safeguard in this federal government? What is going to prevent a evil president from taking power and then taking the military and turning it against our states and taking our freedom. And his answer to them, he answered, answered it in Federalist Paper, I think it was 26. And I don't have it in front of me, but he basically said to, this would, to these would be opposed a militia amounting to near half a million of citizens armed with uh, firearms or weapons. Uh, but basically, he says it's the citizens. It's the citizens that would stand up against an overreaching or overburdensome government. And lots of people have lost sight of the fact that the Second Amendment is not about your hunting rifle. It's not about your ability to have a gun to go shoot a deer or a duck with. It's literally the people's power to prevent a government from becoming overreaching, overbearing, and just taking their freedom anytime they want to. And so when you look at it in that light of, hey, it's it's we the people gave this power to the government and we can take it away as long as we have the ability to, then it becomes pretty important that we continue to have the ability to, or else we don't really have any power. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's seems so easy to understand. Like it really feels like people that oppose this are, are really just trying to find a way to poke a hole in, in what is, is very obvious. Like shall not be infringed is intentionally like, we're serious. Like this sure. is the, the language we picked so that in case you thought that we weren't being clear about this, we're like super, super clear. Sure. Absolutely. Well, and, and look, I, I think that I, you know, I don't, I don't know how it can get any more clear than shall not be infringed. I mean, I don't know of any modern day language that would be any more clear than that. Um, but at the same time, I think we also have people that take that a step further and sound crazy because for example, I've had gun advocates, very much believe or or say to me hey um anything that requires me to train is is an affront to my second amendment right and i actually believe it or not not to offend anyone here think that the historically they're probably wrong if you guys have never heard of it um and and I, i'm curious i'm so i'm gonna ask i'm not i hate to put you on the spot here but ha do you know what the biggest holiday in america used to be just guessing oh that's a that's a great question i have no idea <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so the Easter? biggest holiday, <laughs> nope, biggest holiday in America. I would have thought if, if I was guessing and I didn't know the answer, I'd have said, Oh, what about the fourth of July? We, we used to be more patriotic, you know, Christmas, something like that. No, believe it or not, it was actually called Muster Day, M U S T E R, and it was an actual national holiday that was done away with. And Muster Day, Google it, anybody listening, go Google this and you can go find out more details about it. But by law, everybody was required to come into town bring their gun. They had to march, shoot, compete, train with their firearm. Every able-bodied man did. And so they had to leave their fields, their crops, their businesses, their factories. And because they were all coming into town, the women and children came with them and they cooked and had a giant party. It was the biggest celebration in America every single year. And, um, and it was required by law that you come and train. Now, there was a few religious groups that were exempted, and when it doesn't, that's neither here nor there. It doesn't really matter. But the point is, is that we actually were required as part of our Second Amendment uh, by national holiday to come in and train with our guns. So if, today, if we'd kept that up, we would be in a different world today because every single American would, ha- would own a gun, and we would train with them, and, and this wouldn't be an issue because we would all – recognize the value uh, that that had. The problem is it's been a very long time since um, Americans have had to actually kill something to eat it. They don't understand what hunting does or the roots or where it came from. They don't understand how to survive. They don't understand that a firearm is nothing more than a tool. Um, They don't understand the importance of having one to protect themselves, their family, their property, Uh, They don't understand the legal implications of having one. And it's scary to them because of what our Hollywood and media and news have told the average person. So the more educated we can be as Second Amendment advocates, the more knowledge we can have about and statistics about firearms and the more we can explain and educate people without sounding crazy, um, the more influence that we will have. I, I can promise you this. If we walk around and open carry and sling AR-15s on our backs and carry them into Walmart just because it's legal in our state, we're not going to educate anybody. We're not going to gain any friends. The people that think it's okay are going to think you're weird. The people that don't think it's okay are going to hate it and, and want to go run for the legislature so they can pass a law to make you stop. Now, I believe you have the right to open carry. It doesn't exist in every state anymore because it's been done away with in many of them. But I think if we could ask George Washington, is it a constitutional right? He would say, yeah, absolutely. But we're going to continuously lose those rights unless we're careful about how we use them. So when you go bear hunting tomorrow and you open carry on your boat, there's not a problem with that in the world. But if you were to come back and go into Portland and open carry, you can't in Portland. So that's a bad example. But if you were to come back to Boise and go open carry in a bank and a whole bunch of people see you, you would certainly make people uncomfortable. It's not illegal in Idaho to do that, but you'd make people uncomfortable. You wouldn't gain any friends. You're certainly not educating people by doing it. Um, And so I I think sometimes we have to look at what our actions do and how they come across. Now, if you're going to a hunting camp, if you're going to a, you know, a shooting club banquet and everybody there is going to be wearing their cowboy boots and open carrying, by all means, slap on your 1911 and your best holster and go open carry. But um, I think we have to look at what our actions do. And, and how they're perceived. And, and I don't know, I just went on for a really long time. I'm, but, but I think it's a, an important sort of thing to keep in mind how we come across to people that don't understand what we do. And, and in the same way with, with some of these other amendments, you know, we, we have freedom of speech, but 
we all know that we have to be careful about what we say. There's an effective way to communicate and there's an ineffective way and, and an offensive way to communicate. Just, sure. you know, don't, yeah, don't be that guy. Yeah. Don't put it in people's face if, if, if you don't have to. Okay. So there's a couple things that came up with president Biden's speech that, that I believe are more complicated than people let on. And the first one is, is high capacity magazines. And he specifically talked about a hundred round magazine. And to be completely honest, I tend to agree. I don't want to carry a hundred round magazine. I've carried six 30 round magazines with me <laughs> quite a bit, but like, how, how do we have those conversations where it's like, yeah, I, I kind of see your point. I don't think it should be illegal, but it is impractical. And I don't really care personally if I give up the right to have a hundred round magazine because it's not something that I want to use in the first place. But I also don't want to start slipping down that slope. Well, I completely agree with you. So it, you sort of mentioned something that we say in the law all the time, um, and that is a slippery slope argument as, as in it's kind of like you give up an inch and someone's going to take a mile. It's not really that any of us actually need a hundred round magazine that I know of. I don't know of a hundred round magazine that I think is reliable enough that I would want to use it personally. Um, but it's not really about whether or not it's practical. It's not really about whether I want to use it at this point. It's really more about does the government have the right and the power to, to tell us we can't. And that's where it becomes a slippery slope. If we start letting them dictate to us which accessories we're allowed to have, uh, you know, to defend ourselves or ourselves against the government, then it becomes an issue of where does that stop? And I think that's really ultimately what it comes down to. I don't necessarily think that I would want to carry around a hundred round mag either, but at the same time, I don't see why the government should have any say in whether or not it's practical. No, I was, I was talking with somebody about this and they're like, well, what do you think? I was like, I think I would way rather have somebody shoot at me with a hundred round magazine than a, a five round magazine, like <laughs> any day of the week. But that's, that's really not the point. And then another thing is this super complicated topic of what in the world is a pistol. And you know, that the ATF or, or AFT, I don't know what, what we're calling them these days, but um, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms has a tough job of trying to define what a pistol is as manufacturing techniques try and, and, and change things and change accessories and capabilities. Uh, you know, short-barreled rifles, it, it's all very, very complicated. Um, and there's been some, some video graphics that have come out in the past couple of weeks that show just how complicated that is. And if you add this feature to a pistol, now it's an AOW or now it's an, an SBR. And like, how do we deal with this stuff? And, and honestly, it feels like pistol braces are, are a loophole. I don't really like loopholes. I like to be straightforward. I mean, where do you land on that stuff? Well, uh, huh. I guess I would disagree in, in, in one sense. So, I mean, I guess let's back up a little bit here. Why does it matter whether it's a pistol or a rifle is my first question. Um, it, it fits into the second amendment. So it really shouldn't make any difference. I think that our, our statutes that, that determine one from the other are stupid and unconstitutional to begin with. So, I mean, let's start from that premise that, Hey, um, it shouldn't make any difference if it's a pistol or a rifle. Um, short-barreled rifles are used by our military. We ought to be able to have them as well without any extra red tape. Um, so 
So that's the point. That's not where we're at today. We do have laws that define the difference and the ATF has gone in and as a bureau, um, they have gone in and, and filled in the gaps in the statutes as to what determines if it's a pistol or not. We are allowed to have AR-15s without a stock on them that have as short a barrel as you would like to go. That where they got into trouble with this is, is that they had all these vets coming back that were disabled and they can't actually, they're difficult for them to shoot an AR pistol with one hand. And a big AR, if they've only got one limb or a handicapped, is not something that they can even lift or heft with a 16-inch barrel. And so the idea of this brace came about that it wasn't supposed to be a stock, it was supposed to be a brace. Well, it turns out that, you know, if you stick this on your buffer tube of your AR-15, it actually works as a pretty good thing to brace against your shoulder as well. And that's where the whole mess has now gone to. I kind of, my personal opinion is, is that they're stuck with their definition of what they have defined. I mean, they've, they very have, they very clearly um, made it okay at one point in time, people bought parts and accessories and pistols. And I think it's way too late to go back and act like, wow, we screwed that up. Let's rewrite this. Uh, there are not dozens of crimes being committed by AR pistols. The majority of AR 15s that are owned in this country are owned legally. They're obtained legally and they're owned by law abiding citizens that are not committing crimes with them. Um, and I don't really personally think that it, it, that an AR pistol is any more dangerous. In fact, you could make the argument that it's less dangerous than an AR rifle certainly has less velocity. And at a certain point, you know, the 223 round is somewhat anemic anyway. You bleed four or 500 feet per second off of it, and and um, it's not going to penetrate even pistol armor. So, uh, you know, I, I, there's all kinds of arguments that can be made. I think it's all stupid and that they ought to be required to stick with what their <laughs> original definitions were. <laughs> well, we're definitely in the mode of, of changing the definition of words. You know, another one that came out recently was how we're defining infrastructure, you know, for this this big infrastructure bill that came out and there are, you know, some, some really intelligent people in Congress that were trying to define infrastructure very much otherwise than what the dictionary says. Um, <laughs> and, you know, my background is in literature and writing. I am a huge fan of the English language and I believe that words mean things. And if you start monkeying around with what words mean, then you dilute the entire system of communication. I agree. Okay. Another one, assault rifles. Like what, what is an assault rifle? Like what is a weapon of war? Like there's been a lot of wars fought with tomahawks and knives and clubs, um, slings. My goodness. Like if you read about, about Alexander the great trying to cross Afghanistan, one of their biggest worries were missiles fired from slings, missiles being um, rocks or things like that. And let me tell you what, in today's day and age, if you see an Afghan kid with a sling about 150 yards away from you, you better crawl behind something like immediately because there's going to be a rock whistling past you um, or into your face that will absolutely kill you right now. So, like, how do we talk about weapons of war and, and assault weapons? Um, so, are you asking how, like, in a, a hypothetical sense? Like, what are you, I guess I don't really understand your question. Well, like, if, if, someone, if someone comes up to you as, as a gun advocate or a gun owner 
and says, well, what about assault weapons? Like, how, how do you even start to have that conversation? I, I, first of all, I think we should welcome that conversation. If somebody's willing to have a conversation with us, it means there's an opportunity to educate someone and to sort of explain to them, you know, what we're talking about. Uh, you can't help but think if you're an uneducated gun owner and you can't help but notice if you watch the news that the media and our members of Congress have no idea what the difference between an AR-15 and an M-16 or an M-4 that is has a you know a full auto switch on it. They don't know what the difference is. Um, the law defines a full auto as more than one round per pull of the trigger. So whether it's a three round, whether it's one pull and you get three rounds or two rounds or or it continues to fire until you stop pulling the trigger, that's going to be considered an automatic. Um, and you can own those if you go through a whole stamp process and background check and all that stuff and pay a fortune. It's legal to have one. But the general public cannot go to Walmart or or Cabela's or Bass Pro or their sporting goods store and buy a an automatic. They can buy a semi-automatic, which is one pull of the tr- uh, or one bullet per pull of the trigger, which is exactly what you get out of a revolver. And so, the color uh, literally makes no difference in the lethality <laughs> of the gun. Um, Wait, whether what, it's about, got a what about flat dark earth? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean. It seems it seems more deadly or even black, but it's it's really not. And, um, you know, we laugh because we know. But, you know, a lot of these people don't understand. They don't get it. um, And it just looks scary. And so when you explain to them, hey, a revolver, when you pull the trigger one time, sends one bullet out the end of the barrel. And when you pull the trigger one time on a AR-15, it sends one bullet out of the barrel. They go, really? That's that's not how I understood that. And, um, you know, if they only knew that the old M1 Grand um, in many ways is so much more powerful than um, any AR-15 made today as far as the, the damage capacity uh, because of the, you know, a 30 out 6 is a substantially more powerful round. Um, and yet it looks much more harmless because it has a wood stock and it looks more traditional. And so people really just don't understand and they need to just be educated by somebody with some patience and some understanding themselves. If you don't really understand it yourself, then they're not going to believe you. Yeah, so. it's you're, you're absolutely right. And that one just went through a circuit court um, back in Kentucky, Sixth Circuit Court, something like that, um, regarding bump stocks, because it's one bullet per pull of the trigger. Right. Well, you know, uh, unfortunately, we had a lot of gun advocates in the industry that that came out and, I, and it really was saddening to me and acted as though, hey, President Trump doesn't believe in your guns, you know, and here's the proof he banned bump stocks. Um, look, I, I'm not happy about the fact that he did that. I actually believe he probably did it with the idea knowing that it would not stand up in court. What he did, there's no way that any attorney could have believed that it would have stood up in court if you knew what the definition was. Um, it was a sacrificial lamb. They were screaming for blood. And um, honestly, uh, it was unfortunate. I'm not happy about it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. A court that is going to go and look at the statute is going to say, yeah, this doesn't doesn't get there. So, yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, in these executive orders that you're talking about right now, I mean, they're all fine and dandy. And we may see some short term changes uh, the ATF may crack down and come down harder on things that are sort of gray areas, but unless Congress actually passes a law redefining 
what a pistol is. Um, they're, they have their work cut out for them to do this legally. Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like it's a good thing to have an accurate firearm. And I feel like it's a good thing to practice and become proficient with a firearm. I was recently up in Northern Idaho um, having dinner and overhearing some, some conversation from a table next to me. And they'd heard somebody practicing um, shooting out in the woods somewhere. It's Northern Idaho. This is not a rare occurrence. <laughs> and right? they were concerned about that. And um, this guy was saying, you know, I just don't know what they're practicing for. Are they planning on going in and shooting up in elementary school? It's like almost definitely not like, but that's, that was really his, his fear. And it came from a place I felt like of, of misunderstanding. Like this is something that you have to be proficient with. And the way to do it is to use the thing in a safe environment. So, I mean, that with the ammunition shortages right now, it, it's hard for people to remain proficient because they can't have access to ammunition. And um, it's, it's hard to practice without actually shooting. It's, it's possible, but it's difficult. It, we're, we're just in a, in a tough situation in a lot of ways as gun owners and as gun advocates. But there are a lot of people who are willing to reach out and, and ask for information. And I have people um, who are very left-leaning politically who reach out to me on almost a daily basis to, to ask questions. And like the, the first amendment is about that. It's about communication. And I don't want to shut anybody down, even if they're coming at me and they're mad about it. Like I, I want to at least try and have the conversation and figure out what their concerns are and where they're getting their information. And then see if I can provide a little bit more information that can at least open them up to wondering or, or questioning the way that they feel right now. Right. Absolutely. But, well, you know, um, I was, um, this, <laughs> they, because of COVID here in Idaho, you know, going to the DMV to register a vehicle has always been relatively easy. Like I've never stood in line ever for more than five or 10 minutes. And, um, because of COVID and some changes they've made, they're way behind. They were shut down for months. And I showed up at six 30 in the morning, the other morning to, try and get a vehicle registered and there was already 25 people in line i mean it hadn't even opened yet at 6 30 in the morning and um you know i had the thought um it's unbelievable to me that that this is where people the this is this is a government bureaucracy that has got requirements on how we can drive our vehicles it's unbelievable to me that people want something like this to protect them, that they're going to depend on something this inefficient to protect them or to provide their <laughs> health care insurance or, or not insurance with their health care. Um, I mean, guys, we're just always going to be better off uh, without the government involved in certain aspects of our lives. And when it comes to your personal protection, uh, your own safety, uh, protecting your family, like that really legally 100% falls on, on us. And people that think the police can be everywhere at once have a really warped sense of reality. Um, so forgetting the whole aspect of, hey, you know, the Second Amendment was really to prevent an overreaching, overburdensome federal government, just the aspect of being able to protect yourself from a bear in the woods, um, a meth head that would like to, you know, take advantage of your, your, your property and your house or someone that actually means real physical harm to you or your family, um, 
to, to think we can delegate that out to the government or subcontract it out to them and think that we're going to come out okay is ridiculous. Um, criminals don't follow the law. They never have. That's why they're criminals. It's already illegal to murder someone or rape them or rob them. Um, taking your ability to defend yourself away when someone tries to do that to you is not going to help the problem. Um, and, and so I would highly recommend, I mean, based on the topic we're talking about, go look up the statistics, read about them. Um, there are many, many stories of people, law-abiding citizens defending themselves, stay up on that stuff. And so that you can tell those stories and educate people, um, on those situations. Something that's just interesting that you may not have heard before. I'll just touch on it briefly, but as an attorney, most attorneys know this, you cannot actually sue the police for failing to come and serve and protect you. So for example, there's a really famous story that happened in Washington, D.C. a few years ago where uh, some women had home intruders come in and, and rape them and rob them. And a, one or a couple of the roommates were upstairs and could hear the roommates downstairs screaming. They made two different 911 calls and then went and hid in between them and hours went by. No police ever came. Uh, when they went to court, the judge in the case said that, that the ordeal lasted for 14 hours being raped and beaten. I mean, we're talking about pretty horrific story here. And ultimately though, he dismissed the case because there's longstanding case law in this country in every single state that you cannot sue the police. So even though they called, even though the police said they would come, they basically, the judge ruled that they did not have any duty to come and protect those people, but they only have a duty to the public in general. So the point here is, is that even if the government takes your guns away, like they have in other countries, they still don't have a legal responsibility or duty to come and protect you. And it's an important sort of thing to realize uh, that the stories are out there, the case laws out there. So educate those neighbors that you have that don't think that a gun is important or necessary, teach them the law, help them understand some of this stuff. I can tell you as an attorney that, that if you went down and sat at your local courthouse and watched the arraignments, which is where they first read people their rights and read what they're being charged with, you would be dumbfounded by the amount of burglaries, robberies, assaults, sexual assaults um, that, I mean, hours of them every week in your neighborhood. Uh, it's happening around you. It's not publicized on the news anymore. You know, unless someone gets, unless it's really bad, um, it just isn't even on the news. You don't even hear about it. Uh, but but your need to own a firearm is probably is greater, greater than it's been since the days of the Western frontier when you had to when you couldn't call 911 and expect anyone to show up. So and to become proficient with it. Absolutely. Look, the worst thing you could do is not is know how to use a gun and not know when you could use it. So there's the legal proficiency that you need. And then there's the other aspect of I've got a gun and I know when I can use it, but I'm not physically capable of operating it or operating it in a safe manner. And you hurt your own family member, you hurt an innocent person. I mean, all of those are equally bad. You know, there's, a, there's happened not too many months ago, but there was a homeowner charge. He had a burglar in his house and he chased him out of his house with a firearm two blocks down the street and shot him climbing his neighbor's fence. Well, the homeowner is getting charged with murder as he should. He thought he was doing what he was allowed to do with a gun. And instead he makes all the rest of us look bad because he literally does not understand legally what he's allowed to do. If some of you listening to this think, well, that I don't see what the problem is. Then you need to go take a course and, <laughs> and learn because that's illegal in all 50 States. And, um, 
we don't have it's not really part of what we're talking about today but but um but you know it's it's not something that you have the right to do with a firearm anywhere yeah and one of the most valuable things about going to a pistol class or concealed carry class is is sitting down and a lot of times an attorney will come in and they'll go through all this stuff with you and you'll have you know, a representative from local law enforcement there as well. And they'll go through all of it and it will help you to understand what the situation is that you are now a part of. And you can now become a responsible gun owner by understanding these laws. And there are a grip of laws, like so many freaking gun laws out there right now. It, and I don't even begin to, I, I would never say I know all the gun laws. I don't, I don't even know all the gun laws in my own state. But I feel like I know enough of them that I know what I can and cannot do. Um, you know, there might be some some nuances in in one place or another, but there are a lot of laws on the books. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, as part of doing our job as citizens to make sure that you know we don't lose the Second Amendment, um, we need to be knowledgeable. We need to understand them. We need to not be screwing up with our guns and embarrassing everybody else or making, I mean, how bad would it be if you were a gun advocate and you made such a poor decision or mistake with your gun because of lack of practice or lack of knowledge that they had to pass a new gun law because of something that you had done? I mean, that would be a really horrible. So believe it or not, there are plenty of gun laws out there. We really don't need any more to protect people if they would simply enforce what's on the books now. Um, literally there's nothing you could do that would hurt anyone that, I mean, literally there are no loopholes currently to hurt anyone with a firearm. There's not a need for another gun law to ever be passed again. And yet, um, for some reason, uh, that there's an agenda. I mean, I, I think it's an agenda. I think that they want us disarmed. I think it's, you know, it's certainly a movement that has been coming for a long time and, uh, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with logic or common sense. And so um, I think if we can educate people, uh, it'll make a difference. And, you know, during this COVID thing and the unrest and uncertainty and the riots and the BLM riots and all the other things that have happened, there are a lot of people that have never been gun friendly that for the first time are buying firearms. Um, and it's a great time to be instead of saying, wow, I wish this wasn't happening because now I can't find ammo. It's a great time to be educating people and being involved and, and saying, Hey, I've never seen you at the range before. Let me show you how to load that without pointing it at everybody here, rather than giving people a bad experience. I did it yesterday. There's a gentleman out on, on the range and I was setting in a rifle for this hunt I'm about to step out on. And we were walking out to the hundred yard target to put some paper up. And he said, uh, you know, I haven't uh, shot a gun in 30 years. I was like, wow, that's, that's great that you're getting back into it. He bought it with a stimulus check. I think <laughs> that that's really smart of him. Um, <laughs> he'd had a hard time finding ammo, just like everybody else. I was, so I sat there and made sure that he got zeroed and spotted shots for him and helped him understand mills because he had a scope that was in mills and he'd never heard of that before. And, um, you know, he, he was starting to wrap up just as he had gotten sighted in and I said, well, don't you want to shoot a little bit more? And he's like, oh, I just don't have any ammo. I was like, well, I've got a couple boxes of five, five, six. Why don't you keep practicing? And then you can have a little bit to take home. And, you know, I'm not out anything by doing that. Um, and that was a good experience for him. And, and hopefully he can take that good experience and, and help somebody else have a good experience too. Right. No, that's exactly what we all need to be doing. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I honestly, that's, that's exactly what we all need to be doing. 
Well, true. I really appreciate your, your perspective and your knowledge base on all this. It's, you know, you know more about this history than anybody that I know. It's, it's super interesting. And uh, I encourage people to, to, check out true um check out guns america check out hunt 365 we'll have links to all that in the podcast description and uh yeah man i I just appreciate your time and and i'm sorry that you're not going to be able to uh to make it out on the bear hunt but i'm sure we'll be we'll be out hunting again or shooting shooting together again soon yeah i'd love to go sometime so good luck to you guys and uh, be safe out there okay thank you sir hey you bet thank you I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store and catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, Follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.